This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You must have heard of the uh, tragic earthquake that has struck central Italy. At least 73 people are dead after a devastating earthquake in central Italy. Uh, reduced three towns to rubble. To talk more about all of this, Lydell Weeb is with his assistant professor of civil engineering, is an earthquake expert and focus on steel structures and returning buildings to occupancy after earthquakes. And he is with us now. Hello, Lydell. How are you today? Good. How are you, Scott? Good. You've seen seen some of the devastation there, I'm, I'm sure. What can you tell us? Well, what I'm seeing is a lot of what we would expect in, uh, in this part of Italy. Uh, I did my master's degree over there, and uh, it's a very historic region, uh, and they tend to get hit by a, lar- a lot of these earthquakes that are not huge by, uh, by earthquake standards, but in the immediate region around where, uh, where the earthquake happens, uh, there can be a lot of damage. And it's reminding me a lot of the L'Aquila earthquake that we saw seven years ago. Uh, compare the two. Uh, is it similar? And is it a case of, as you mentioned, not that these are extremely severe, well, of course, severe enough to, to cause the death of 73 people, at least at this point, but the structures themselves with the age and, and, and just the historic nature of these buildings that makes them susceptible? Right. So a lot of these structures are uh, quite historic ones. They'd be designed before the advent of what we know now about earthquake engineering. Uh, and so the way we would design structures now is not how, how these ones were built. And in, in most cases, uh, structures wouldn't have been retrofitted uh, to bring them up to, to current standards. And so a lot of the, the damage and, uh, and the casualties are because uh, of the lack of implementation of earthquake engineering knowledge. It's not so much a lack of knowledge as a lack of implementation. Um, compared to L'Aquila, it, uh, it's a slightly larger earthquake uh, in terms of magnitude. Uh, but location is everything with these things. And uh, the L'Aquila earthquake happened pretty much in L'Aquila, which is a city of about 70,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, this one uh, happened, Amatrice is the town that I'm seeing mentioned the most, which is about 2,500 people. Uh, so it's a, it's a much smaller center and uh, therefore less. Uh, possibility for the same level of devastation. Uh, obviously, if this was a bigger city, y- you would be concerned that there would be a lot more damage then? Particularly in a, in a historic region, yes. Uh, and you t- uh, there was mention of this being a shallow quake. What does that mean? Can you tell us anything there? Um, yeah, the, the kind of uh, seismicity that we're looking at in, in central Italy is a relatively complex one. Most of the earthquakes that we talk about um, are the, the most damaging ones around the world. Uh, happen at really clear plate tectonic boundaries. Uh, this one was an intraplate earthquake, uh, which is a bit harder to characterize. Uh, but having it shallow means that uh, the, the source of the earthquake is closer to where the buildings are, and uh, the closer you are, the more damage can be caused. Uh, d- as far as aftershocks, there seems to have been quite a few of these. Is that common, or does that have anything to do with the type of earthquake that this is? It, it's very common. There's, uh, there are generally... Um, many, many aftershocks that happen after this kind of earthquake. Uh, what I've seen is on the order of five or six uh, with magnitude greater than four uh, so far, but uh, at this point we c- it's too early to say uh, whether to expect that in the days and weeks to come uh, we might see aftershocks that are smaller. We may even find some larger uh, earthquakes happening in the region in the days to come. Any reason to suspect anything in this region, any sort of indication that this was going to happen? Uh, we know historically that, uh, that the region overall is, uh, is susceptible to this kind of earthquake. So the L'Aquila one, again, uh, is only 45 kilometers away. Uh, so a similar region, similar kind of seismicity going on. Uh, but as far as the exact uh, earthquake prediction is not at a state uh, where we can say right. there will be an earthquake uh, at such and such a time. We can only talk in terms of probabilities. Uh, and how far is this from Rome, roughly? Was it felt in Rome? Uh, I think it was about 100 miles, 150 kilometers. So, mm-hmm. uh, yes, it was felt there. Uh, it happened in the middle of the night, so 3.30 a.m. So I'm guessing lots of people would have slept through it uh, in Rome. It's a, a large earthquake, but at that kind of distance, uh, it's, uh, I don't think that uh, there were that many reports of, uh, of feeling it. And certainly I haven't heard of any... Uh, damage in Rome, yeah. So as far as as uh, the size of this, not in magnitude, but in, in the area that it covers, uh, is this relatively small, large? How does this compare? Uh, well, the, the region of Italy that we're talking about is central uh, Italy, where there aren't that many uh, really large population centers, mm-hmm. uh, particularly close Perugia. It's not that far, um, but uh, it's not like having something right beside Rome. And uh, so if Rome is yeah, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I've got about 150 kilometers in my mind. 
so at that kind of distance, uh, we're not expecting a lot of uh, damage unless you have a really huge uh, magnitude of earthquake, which this was not. Uh, what about rail lines, things like that? How, what, what sort of collateral damage is there in things like this over and above the initial impact? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it can uh, certainly cause damage, and they, uh, normally they'll send out crews to, to check the lines and make sure that, uh, that there haven't been any shifts that would cause uh, a derailment if the train goes over. Uh, usually they'll also, um, immediately after a major earthquake, they'll shut down the trains in the area until they can assess and confirm that everything is safe. Uh, from what I've heard in the news so far, at least, it sounds like uh, the, the biggest issues that are coming out so far are, uh, are to these historic structures, and that's, that's not a surprise. The historic structures tend to, uh, uh, are designed very, very differently from how we would design things today, and so they're very susceptible. Is it possible to reinforce something like this that's that old and, 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 and try to make it a little bit more uh, durable in, in situations like this? It is possible. Uh, there are lots of challenges with it. Part of, part of it is uh, Italy being so dependent on the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to cause damage or, or remove the historic value of some of these structures. So you wouldn't want to tear them down and rebuild. Right. Uh, and usually the philosophy is to try to, um, to retrofit things in such a way that you can undo the retrofits uh, and, uh, as much as possible that you don't have to see them. Uh, so it is possible to do that sort of thing. The other challenge is we don't know when the next earthquake is going to strike. You know, these, these buildings in many cases could be hundreds of years old. And uh, they managed to make it through the last couple hundred years uh, without yeah. coming down because there hasn't been an earthquake uh, that hit at just the right place uh, or just the wrong place, I guess. Um, and so it's it's this balancing of uh, of how much are you how much does it make sense to spend uh, to prevent this kind of catastrophe from happening. Talk about the level of devastation. Uh, the quote is the the town isn't here anymore. I mean, it, it's taken out quite a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's the uh, the mayor of the town. That's what uh, what he said. And uh, so far, the reports are 70 plus uh, deaths. The the initial estimates, just based on historical data, uh, are suggesting that we'll probably see somewhere on the order of 100 uh, deaths. It could be more than that, but uh, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that number increase in the in the time to come. And uh, initial, again, this is extremely preliminary, but uh, initial estimates are suggesting that the cost will probably be upwards of a billion dollars. Wow. How long would this would this have lasted? How, I mean, again, it, it, it struck right in the middle of the night, 3, 3.30 in the morning uh, for them. Uh, what would it have been like? I mean, how long, any idea how long this may have lasted? Uh, I haven't looked up the accelerogram on this one, uh, but usually for the size of earthquake, we're talking maybe on the order of 20 seconds, something like that. Uh, and so it's, it's terrifying to be in that sort of thing. Also, depending on the kind of building that you're in, uh, you might feel it for a little bit longer after the earthquake has has happened. But uh, it's quite a short uh, process where a lot can happen. But then keep in mind as well the aftershocks that are happening afterwards. So even if you were in a structure that was safe Mm -hmm. uh, and you evacuated that structure, if you then feel another earthquake 20 minutes later, uh, you don't know what to expect is going to happen next. And Mm. some of the reports that I've seen suggest that uh, walls on buildings that are still intact but are visibly bulging outwards uh, so walking in the streets is a is a scary and and dangerous uh, place to be right now. You can imagine what that must have been like in the middle of the night to have that hit, and then in twenty thirty seconds it's all over and and it's dark. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just terrifying. You don't know you don't know what to expect. Uh, shocking to you. You would uh, you went to bed not expecting that something like this would happen, and uh, it takes time to come to grips with. Lydell Weeb has been with us, Assistant Professor, Civil Engineer, uh, and Earthquake Expert. Uh, Lydell, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Uh, joining us now, Sharan Levera is with us, Deputy Director of Operations, Disaster Management for the Red Cross, and is with us now. Hello, Sharan. How are you? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Sharan, what happens as soon as something like this comes across uh, uh, the desk of the Red Cross? What immediately happens? How, how do you move in, into action? Well, I mean, this is a very tragic situation. It's a very large earthquake, obviously affecting a large area of central Italy, which is unfortunately prone to these types of uh, earthquakes in the past. So what happens immediately is we have Red Cross volunteers and staff on the ground with materials already pre-positioned in these locations because of high risk. So right away we have uh, teams that respond. And right now in Italy, in the areas 
uh, in the villages and the areas that are there. We are doing search and rescue efforts uh, right away. Uh, in addition to that, Red Cross has ambulances, more than 20 ambulances already in the area, providing that medical assistance, some psychological support uh, to the people, and, and the basic needs. So what we try to do is we prioritize what are the most important needs on the ground right now, which is which generally comes down to you know, life-saving assistance. This is the water. This is the health care. After this, we prioritize secondary needs. So that's what's happening right now on the ground. How difficult is it to get, this area, to, get to this area for your team? You know, this area, what we're hearing from our teams is it's a very mountainous area, um, and it has, uh, you know, so transportation is, is difficult, and in some of the best of days, obviously with an earthquake, there is, there's landslides and other roads that have been blocked. So we are using different transportation methods from, from helicopters and others uh, generally in this area. What we're hearing is that we are able to access uh, we're able to provide that assistance to people. So, but uh, we know that in mountainous areas, generally it is a challenge logistically to get there. What is the biggest challenge in the first 24 hours of an operation like this? You know, the the needs can be very overwhelming right away. When uh, you know, in the past, when I've arrived in a situation like this, it can be very overwhelming. Okay, what do I focus on first? So it's it's trying to figure out that, and I think fortunately the Red Cross has a very good mechanism to coordinate with the other agencies and the government around what are the needs, how do we focus on what the priority needs are, and then making sure that assistance gets there. So focusing on the, the priorities, it's, it's always a challenge uh, with, uh, with this type of situation, especially in the early hours of a response. And, uh, and this is what's, uh, you know, what's happening right now. But for the Red Cross, I mean, because we have volunteers and staff and material already pre-positioned, it was very quick for us to respond to this earthquake. And we will be there uh, providing that support in the days to come. So you are already strategically re- uh, placed throughout the world, and whenever things like happen, it just moves into action. Yeah, that's correct. So this is the Italian Red Cross I'm speaking about specifically, which has a connection to the Canadian Red Cross. I mean, we're all a part mm-hmm. of the same Red Cross family. Uh, we work the same way. We have the same mechanisms and the training, so we're very familiar with it. And the focus of the Canadian Red Cross right now is to support the Italian Red Cross. One of the ways that we're doing this is uh, we know that in Canada specifically, uh, we have a lot of uh, connections to Italy, uh, mm-hmm. family members, dependents, so on and so forth. So Canadians looking for support can contact the Red Cross to see if there's any family members or relatives that the Red Cross has registered as safe and well in Italy that we can put them in touch with uh, relatives here in Canada. So they, if they like to go on our website and find more information about that, right on the front page there's information. And obviously, you know, we always recommend that if they're looking for Canadian citizens, the government of Canada is the best source to, to consular services to find out. So this is something Canadians can do right now if they're concerned about uh, Canadians and well-being of their relatives. And of course, just contact the Red Cross, the Canadian Red Cross, in order yeah, to Yeah, I can give process. you a phone number of our information line. So uh, it's one 800 Mm-hmm. 363-7305. That's 1-800-363-7305. Or on our redcross.ca website, that's redcross.ca. There's more information about what the Red Cross is doing right now and how Canadians can support uh, and, and get information about the situation. Uh, it's still very early hours, obviously, um, so we'll be updating our website as more information comes in. And this earthquake hit in the middle of the night. Man, what kind of challenge would that have uh, provided for the next couple of hours after that? You My know, goodness. This is, yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. I mean, middle of the night, early morning, these are the most difficult times because of obviously darkness and, uh, and that, but also as people are, you know, people are resting and they're not, mm-hmm. uh, they're not able to move around as quickly. So it's very tragic. I mean, this is a very serious emergency and it's still early days, or sorry, early, early hours, I should say. Um, and we'll have to see how that goes now. It's, you know, it's the afternoon now in Italy, and we have been working throughout the, throughout the night and into the morning and, you know, saving lives and doing the search and rescue aspects, and, and we'll be doing that for the next couple of days. And the real focus right now is on that life-saving assistance. Uh, 1-800-363-7305. That's 1-800-363-7305 if you need help. And redcross.ca is the website to find out more. And, of course, this is always a good time to reach down and help the great people of the Red Cross and all that they do. Uh, Sharan Lavera has been with us, Deputy Director of, Opu- uh, of Operations, uh, Disaster Management for Red Cross Canada. Sharan, thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you very much. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, the love affair that Canada has with Prime Minister Trudeau. Everybody's feeling great underneath, uh, the, um, underneath the umbrella of Trudeau mania. Just a more positive, more... Uh, 
outgoing sort of uh, type of government, uh, not a government that plays their cards real close to their chest and, and, and is into inclusion as opposed to fear, uh, which seemed to be, you know, the mantra of the last government. That being said, how long does the fun last? When is the honeymoon over? And, of course, uh, the opposition looking for that to happen just as quickly as possible, please. And that being said, you know, we we all watched the big Tragically Hip concert the other night, and uh, there's Gord Downey doing a shout-out to the PM, and, and we got a good guy here and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but now we're starting to see, well, the, uh, probably just the typical things of typical government and expenses and stuff the way it's been done for years. And now it's under the microscope with this government, uh, whether it is car services, uh, photos, uh, meals in the Air Canada lounge. Uh, it seems that MPs are starting to, you know, do the same old things that politicians seem to do. To talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and he's here now. Hi, Henry. How you doing today? Just great. So, you know, here we go again, Henry. Typical stuff. The political cycle is about to start as we get back into the fall. Uh, is the honeymoon over for the Trudeau government or is the loving continuing? Well, I think uh, he's a lucky guy and the uh, honeymoon is still uh, going along because he essentially he's got uh, really no opposition the, in, in, the House, in the House of Commons. The other parties are all disorganized. Mm. Uh, two major parties don't even have permanent leaders yet. Uh, you know, none of the provincial premiers look all that attractive compared to him. Uh, and then when you look at the United States, they got two deeply flawed people running for president of the United States. So I say right now he is really, really lucky. There's nobody else around that Canadians might be paying attention to that they would think that that person would be better than the prime minister. So, uh, you know, he... He's got luck right now. Sooner or later, there will be probably a, an effective opposition, but they're going to take a long time to get there. So, in other words, if you look around at what's uh, going on in every other corner of, uh, of life, our guy looks pretty good. That's right. And, in, and even if people looked around what's going on in the United Kingdom and the mess that their parties are in with the leaving the European, uh, you know, with their referendum, Brexit leaving the uh, European Union, I mean, everybody else seems to have far more problems and he's uh, he's there. He's you know he is a very attractive, youthful uh, you know candidate. He's pleasing to the eye. His cabinet is pretty young. Uh, they look pretty pleasing. You know, face to face when you look at them. So yeah. So basically, compared to everybody else, uh, you know, they all look very very good. But that being said. Uh, they have to be careful about uh, little things that can start gnawing away at some point and might pile up. And uh, certainly being uh, careless with people's money is a, is a big mistake uh, in terms of your expenses. It's not a lot of money, but people you know, take a look at that and say, well, that's not really what they ought to be doing. They shouldn't be spending money on things. And we had uh, you know, a few things that, uh, uh, that have started to creep up. Uh, we had the uh, uh, environment minister. I think she's been spending money. Money a little, you know, a little unwisely. Certainly, we had the thing about, you know, having a photographer mm-hmm. follow her around to take nice pictures, photos of her. Um, going a little further back, a lot of people were upset with the the size of our delegation. There was a Paris environmental conference, and there was a large number of people who yeah. went. And you, if you went down the list, saying, "Why are all these people going?" And uh, you know, it was not cheap, but it. Certainly, I'm sure all the people who went to Paris said, oh, great, I can go to a conference in Paris. This is absolutely wonderful. But uh, they were doing it on the uh, taxpayer's dime. Uh, as you mentioned, there's things that have started to surface about some MPs' expenses. Is this any different than any other party? Are they doing anything more or anything less than anyone else? Is this just typical stuff? Uh, I think they've learned from some other things that went before them when, you know, when the Harper government had some people that got snags. I think, and the Harper Harper government learned from previous liberal governments. Uh, You know, they constantly have checklists. You shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. But, you know, no matter how many things you go over... Uh, you always forget a few things, <laughs> right. and so uh, you know you you can have somebody in the uh, you know prime minister's office saying, well, here's a list of stuff you, your ministers shouldn't do, but and it gets the list gets better and better, and I think the the ministers will try to pay attention to it, but you know there there's things that they just never 
they never anticipate, you know, they never didn't anticipate, well, I shouldn't hire a, a photographer to follow me around and take take photos of me at, a, a, you know, a certain cost. Or I have to watch the, you know, the size of the delegations to, uh, you know, international conferences. and uh, Or, uh, you know, I shouldn't hire a constituent who runs a limousine business to, to uh, drive me around when uh, when the ministers have their own cars and drivers, so that's kind of mm. hard to understand. If you've got your minister, you have access to a, a you know a, a car and a driver because uh, they, they have to move around. Their time is very you know precious, mm-hmm. but you don't have to go out and hire uh, um, a fancy limousine from one of your uh, somebody in your riding, uh, and then you know give them big bucks for driving you around for a day or two. So you know, the, the, these are all you live and learn, and and hopefully they can they can uh, you know try to anticipate all the possible problems that will uh, will will bite them. I think all these people don't want to make those mistakes because if you start making those mistakes, you get kicked out of cabinet, yeah. and the, the prime minister gets unhappy with you. So you've got to uh, yeah. So you've got to be careful. So. Uh, you know, inter- you always have to be careful about these things, and you're always going to have little things pop up. But hopefully, you can cut them off and say, "Okay, that was a mistake. We'll never do that again. We'll pay back the money. I'm sorry for doing it." Yeah. And hopefully, there's no more of these. And you know, some of these ministers are people have not been, you know, a whole bunch of them have never been ministers before. So they're not, you know, they don't, and they may not have been in the House of Commons before. So they don't know, you know, they don't, uh, they don't have maybe sometimes a good sense of what you can do or what you can't do uh, when, when you're spending money. So it's a, it's a, it's a learning experience. So I don't, I think it's better than before, but it can get out of hand unless the prime minister is really tough on all the on all their ministers. Is this honeymoon longer than usual with most uh, new leaders, uh, and is that part is that partly because, as you mentioned, uh, the opposition is in disarray, whether it's NDP or Conservative? Yeah, I think it is longer uh, because because we have this special condition of of whether you look at. The opposition in the House of Commons, as I said, if you look at the premiers, you look at the United States, you look <clears throat> at the leaders in the United Kingdom, you don't have anybody who looks more attractive than our prime minister right now. Mm. And that is, now we don't know who the conservatives and who the NDP are going to pick as a leader. Uh, they might pick someone who, you know, a year or two down the road, that looks very, very attractive, but they're not there yet. And the other thing that he's got going for him, too, right now, is the economy is slowly, and I use the word slowly, but it is slowly getting better. And uh, that, you know, that we've gone through a long, tough slog since the what they call the Great Recession of 2008. Yeah. And we have been getting better, but it's, it's slow. But a lot of people could feel, and I've been looking at some of the consumer surveys and things like that are coming out, people think things are getting better. You know, they would like it to get better much faster. They're not completely happy with their economic situation or the country, but they're optimistic. And so every week they look to be a little bit happier. So hmm. that is good. So, you know, uh, you know, that is good for somebody who's in power. And so right now a lot of people will say, well, you know, over the past year since he became prime minister, things have gotten a bit better. Not really great, but they're getting better and there's no one else attractive. So I just think in some ways he's kind of lucky uh, about both in the economy and he's lucky in terms of the, uh, you know, of, of other leaders who might right. look more attractive. With the... got, but there are problems he's going to have to take care of, and I, uh, I'll mention a couple of them, especially to our local people. Well, one, one's a national-wide issue, but it's local in the sense that last night I was a moderator at a uh, town hall in Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas, the McMaster mm. Innovation Park on electoral reform. hundred people came up of mm. all parties. Was, they spoke their mind for two, two and a half hours. And it was very interesting. A lot of them, although they don't like our present system, are worried that he's going to rush, Justin Trudeau is going to rush and impose a, a different way of voting in our country that we may not like. And that's, uh, that's a, it's a dangerous issue if people feel that he's changing the rules of the game of, of the voting and people aren't, haven't bought into it. So, and he said he wants to change it by the next election. And that was in his platform. Uh, That's right. How important is it that he does deliver that? Well, I'm sure he wants to deliver it, but if he... But if you deliver something people don't like, yeah. that's better you don't deliver it at all. 
And my sense from last night, now those are the 100 people in the area who showed up, uh, most of them that are riding here, Hamilton West, Ancaster have done this, but there's some people came in from other ridings, the Mountain, Burlington, and these are all people who thought about it, and many of them were liberal too, by the way, and they just said, well, maybe we shouldn't be rushing here. There's a lot of different things we can do. We're not sure if we change the voting system that uh, it's going to work any better, and we're not sure people are going to be really happy with the change, so maybe we ought to just slow this whole process down. So I think he's going to have to bite the bullet there, and his minister who's in charge of that is a very junior, very young person who doesn't have much experience. So this is a file he's got to look out for. A second thing I would mention in terms of locally, we have no minister in the cabinet from Hamilton. It's probably, I can't remember the last time you had a government, uh, particularly a liberal government, uh, federal majority liberal government who didn't have a minister from Hamilton it's uh, and i think that's going to you know it's going to bother people we don't have a minister from the niagara peninsula you know haldeman norfolk brantford even halton so you know we have a we're a big area here with a lot of people and there's no minister in the cabinet now there are 30 people in the cabinet and we don't even get one of those now i think that people may not be too much aware of that right now but I said, I think as we go down to, you know, get closer to the to the next election, people saying, hey, we, we have no voice at the cabinet table. And they'll start to say, well, there's local issues that are really important that aren't being dealt with. And and fairly or unfairly, people are going to say, hey, the government's out of touch. And one one issue, of course, is uh, the steel industry and everything that's happening with, uh, with our steel pensioners and the steel workers here. And every, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, you know, maybe there's no policy for the government. There's no, the federal government doesn't seem to be doing to, anything to help out. Uh, you know, these pensioners, they've lost their health benefits. Uh, they're not sure about their pensions. You know, tremendous insecurity at this point. And, uh, and, and in the broader picture, what's the government policy about the Canadian steel industry? Doesn't seem to be one. Mm. And, and, and people are going to link that to the fact we don't have a cabinet minister. Because you need somebody at the cabinet table saying to the other ministers, including the prime minister, we got a problem in Hamilton, the greater Hamilton area, because we got a, a problem with our steel industry. We got to do something about it. Well, you know, it, it looks like, you know, this is not, you know, something they're paying much attention to up in Ottawa. Uh, you, you talked about how uh, the honeymoon is extended because of uh, lack yeah. of leadership in the other parties. Is the biggest challenge for this government to not shoot themselves in the foot, to not trip themselves up on one of these other issues? That's right. Well, that's the whole. Pro- that's the thing. Is if you if you're too comfortable, if you think things are going along well there's a real chance that you start making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always good to have a strong opposition. I mean, we there have been cases in other provinces, like New Brunswick being one a, few, a number of years ago, if you have virtually, or PEI, no, virtually no opposition, well, no, there's no one there to tell you you're doing things wrong. So the result is you do things wrong, and it gets worse and worse, and then finally you come to the election, people say, what have you guys been doing? <laughs> You know, you've made a mess of things. And the reason is is because you haven't had critics in, in, the, in the legislature saying, you, you know, you need to change this, you need to be responsible for this, you need to be accountable for that, you need to be responsive to, to, to problems that are developing. And I think that's, I mean, that's always a problem in majority government to begin with, but if you don't have a strong opposition, which he does not have now. Neither the no. There's nobody mm. in the House of Commons who's really giving him a hard time right now. So they they begin. It's easy for them to get overconfident. What about uh, native issues? Uh, we all know that part of the election campaign was uh, accepting all of recommendations with the Truth and Reco- uh, Reconciliation Commission. How will this play out over his term? Well, there's two things here. On the positive side, I mean, the government does want to do something here positively and try to follow those recommendations. Okay, and so they are sensitive to it. They want to respond to it. The big problem that they're going to be running into, of course, a lot of those uh, recommendations are very, very costly. They're very, very expensive to fix. I mean, a lot of it has to do with a lot of the reserves are in rural areas where we're building infrastructure and trying to, you know, replicate the kind of quality infrastructure you have in southern cities is very, very expensive. Uh, 
you know, so it's and, and there's a lot of these reserves and they're small and that you know that is a very so there's a it's a very big expense to improve those conditions and those reserves. I know the government wants to do that, but you know even you know it's how you know how much money and how fast can you spend it to deal with these problems? I mean Canadians expect them to do it, the indigenous populations expect them to do it, but it is very expensive. And so then it squeeze, squeezes out other problems uh, that need money as well. So that is um, that that's a problem, and it's going to be interesting to see how they manage that. Uh, he seems to have, and so a number of his promises, especially ones that cost you know money, that they're sort of saying, well, we won't deal with those right away, but we'll start dealing with them before we have to go to the next election. Well, that will, you know, so hopefully, you know, from his point of view, he wants to hope people are going to be patient with that. Uh, on the other hand, he is anxious to spend money on infrastructure and get going on that because I think he thinks you know that is really needed to get the keep the economy going and really improve. And he, I mean, he just may get lucky and and with the if the economy really starts to pick up, primarily because maybe the American economy will start to pick up even more so. Then that generates tax revenue, and then there's then you have more money to spend on things. So he he may he may be he may be a really lucky guy over his first four years. It, it's quite possible, but there are there are problems out there that he's going to have to worry about. Uh, as the other parties pick a leader, have they learned anything from watching Trudeau get elected? Uh, I'm not sure. It's really it's really unclear to me. Uh, I mean, who that that the other parties have really figured out what they have to do. Uh, you know, certainly they might look okay. Somebody who's young and attractive and appealing is is very good. Uh, yeah, because if they get, I mean, if they get someone who's you know much older than him, again the comparison will be made. Okay, well, you got somebody ten or twenty years older than him, so Trudeau keeps looking like he's fresh and 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 and, and an agent of change. But uh, so they really, so they have to really find somebody who looks like they're, you know, not. Not not all that much older than him, and and that there's somebody you know there's somebody who's very attractive to uh, to put in place, and you know you look at what who do the parties have to put in uh, the conservatives? Uh, I don't think you know. Do they have their best bet right now with they Ron don't, Ambrose? I mean, Jason Kenney, who I think uh, would have been an interesting person to run again. Now he's from Ed, from Calgary, and they have had so many people out of Alberta and Calgary. Uh, so he decided to go for the premiership in, uh, in the, well, the nomination with the Conservative Party's uh, mm-hmm. leadership out there. Uh, so John Baird, I think, would have been very attractive, and he hasn't thrown his hat in the ring, and I don't doesn't look like he's going to now. I'd say, you know, when you look at the last cabinet and you said, well, who's really good out there? Uh, you, you know, I would have looked at Kenny and Baird. I thought those would those two guys would be very attractive. Um, the you know then you start to look at outsiders uh you know I'm not really sure one person who is very very important canadian and it's going to be interesting to see what he's going to do and i don't know if the conservatives will go after him because he hasn't been normally thought of as 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 a as a conservative but that's uh, that's uh, mark carney who's the governor mm. of the bank of england now mark carney's made it very clear that he's only serving one term over there as Governor Bank uh, of England, and he's coming home. And he has an outstanding reputation, and, I mean, he has a tremendous presence. I mean, anybody who's had any interactions with him, you know, you just have to be, I mean, I have to say I've met a number of politicians and government officials over my life, but but I had a meeting with Mark Carney two years ago, and I just thought, boy, there was nobody like him. Why? What, what stood out about him? He, it's like he's in control. He walks into the room, and he just starts talking, and you say, this guy is a man who's in control of his world. Hmm. And, and you don't resent it. What you do is you feel like comforted because you say, this guy's going to take care of me. That's an interesting phrase, you don't resent it. You don't resent it. I mean, he... T- he comes in, he's in control, he controls the meeting, he's talking, and you feel, man, this guy knows exactly what he's talking about. He's got tremendous presence, he's brilliant, and you don't resent the fact that he's running the meeting and he's in control of everything. Mm. And you feel that he really does care about your problems, but he 
pitch, but he talks about him in in a very big picture sort of way that you know your happiness really depends on the world's happiness, <laughs> and and he, he I, I must say I I I, I and, the, and quite frankly there are, I thought there were other people in the room with me I came with into the meeting and I thought some of them were going to faint the way he uh, <laughs> and he was it was like a, a, you know he was a, he was a superstar he, mm. he's the only person in Canada I think right now if you put him next to Justin Trudeau and if and if and if Carney was the conservative leader, Justin Trudeau would have a lot of trouble at that time. He's the only person I can imagine who, right off the bat, would cause a lot of problems for Justin Trudeau. Interesting. Henry Jasek's been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about all things political. Henry, as always, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Okay, always fun, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've heard of a new phrase called energy poverty. And it's uh, when you realize how much your energy, your electricity bill has gone up, uh, you can understand how there now is energy poverty in this province. A town hall meeting was held last night by the Citizens Coalition Against Privatization, who argues that because Hydro One is being privatized, the rates should be expected to rise even more. To talk more about all of this, uh, Rosario Marchese is with us, chair for the Citizens Coalition Against Privatization, and on the line with us now. Hello, Rosario. How are you today? I'm very well, Scott. And and just just to let you know, my last name is Marchese. <laughs> all right. Sorry about that, uh, Rosario. No at all. So tell us about the Citizens Coalition Against Privatization. Well, we've been, we've been going around the province having meetings uh, with uh, citizens. And I've got to tell you, just like the reaction we got in Hamilton yesterday, when people hear about the, the, the facts around what it will mean to privatize uh, our, our uh, Hydro One system, they go nuts and they want to do something about it. Because what I, what I pointed out is that for 100 years, our hydro rates were about 4 or 5 cents kilowatt an hour. And once Mike Harris deregulated the system and, and, and uh, partially privatized our system by giving away boost power to a private uh, uh, firm uh, where they made the profits and we, we keep the debt, um, rates began to go through the roof. So we went from about 4 or 5 cents kilowatt an hour to, to peak, at peak, 31 cents today. So it, it was the partial privatization that happened in 1999, and then when the, the, the McGuinty government uh, decided to, to uh, simply allow only the private sector to build solar and wind, that's when rates went through the roof again. Hmm. So, so between these two governments, including now the decision to sell Hydro One, you're going to see rates go through the roof, and that's why you're hearing about the expression about energy poverty, because people simply can't afford the rates anymore. Why is this not resonating with the Canadian public? I mean, cert- or so the Ontario public. I mean, certainly lots of people are complaining and bitching about it now. But man, this has been going on for an awfully long time. Why? Why do they? Why have voters sat back and watched this happen? Well, that's that's a, that's a very very good question. If it appears in the media and uh, and uh, we get on radio stations like yours and people hear about it, they're going to get angrier. But I have to say, the polls that have been done show that 80 to 85% of the people oppose the sale of Hydro One. And the government did a province-wide poll, and it shows that 72% of the people across Ontario are against it. So in spite of the fact that there is not enough media attention on the issue, when you ask people, they're against the sale of Hydro One, which you would think it would be enough for a Premier Wynne to, to back away from the, the complete sale of Hydro One, but so far, she hasn't stopped. But that doesn't mean that she's high in the polls. She's dropping in the polls. And this could be one of the reasons. I remember uh, Premier McGinty saying way back when, my Ontario's not for sale. What do you think has changed? Well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting remark, uh, because he said that prior to the 2003 election. And once he got elected, his minister, Dwight Duncan, the minister of energy, said, we're going to only allow the private sector... To, to build solar panels, and only the private sector can do wind power. And so the Ontario power generation was excluded from being able to bid. And, and I remind the people listening that if, if the Ontario power generation, the public utility, w- was creating the, the gas plants in uh, Oakville and Mississauga, we would not be paying the $1.1 billion dollars that we now are forced to pay for the cancellation of those two projects in Mississauga. And so 
it was a good thing to hear McGinty say before the 2003 election where privatization is dead, and it was awful to hear him say once the election was over <laughs> through his Minister of Energy, Dwight Duncan, that they were going to only allow the private sector to build solar and wind power. And, and that's, that's the problem. I mean, people need to, to sort of follow governments more closely because the decisions they make affect the lives of people and affect the lives of businesses. Uh, we, businesses, businesses have benefited from a stable, uh, low uh, hydro rate for 100 years. And ever since Mike Harris deregulated the market and partially privatized it, rates have gone through the roof for businesses, and many fled to Manitoba and Quebec where the rates are a third of the price that they pay in Ontario. You bring up a valid point in in uh, in your discussions last night. If if the Tories had done this, there'd be mass protests in the streets. That's why right. why do you think that there is with them, but nobody seems to care when the Liberals do it? I've never understood it. I have to tell you, it, it, anything that the Conservative Party does around any issue of privatization would be considered an evil act, and there would be mass demonstrations at Queen's Park. And when the Liberals do it, for some bizarre reason, people think there must be a good reason, because Liberals don't privatize. Exactly. So what are the Liberals seeing that the Conservatives aren't? Well, they, they're saying, oh, we're doing this because we have no option, and we're doing this because we're building infrastructure. But the idiocy of that argument is that they're, they're only going to use $2 billion of the $7 billion they might make for, for infrastructure investment. And look what they're giving up, Scott. They're giving up $500 million a year because that's what it means to, to sell 60% of your, your Hydro One. It means giving up close to $500 million a year forever. How could that be intelligent? That money could be used forever for infrastructure spending versus the short-term amount of money they're going to raise and the little amount they want to spend on infrastructure, which in my view is a spit in the ocean. Because $5 billion was going to use, be used according to what they said, for debt or deficit reduction. So, so how idiotic is it to give up $500 million every year for life while enriching private sector bankers who are just salivating uh, at the prospect of getting the next 30%? and enjoy the profits forever. Premier Wynn will uh, say it's all about her, her green plan. It's all about the environment. Uh, we need this money so we can leave a, a cleaner planet for our, our grandkids. It's about the environment, yeah. and if you're against it, you're anti-environment. Yeah, no, she, she's absolutely wrong because uh, if she says that, because the, the, uh, the, um, the private sector, the bankers, once they own 60% of Hydro One, they'll be in complete control. And do you think for a moment they're interested in conservation? The bankers who own the hydro, 60% of Hydro One, they're not interested in conserving, they're interested in consuming and, and, and making sure the profits stay up, not down. So there is no conservation that is going to happen with the sale of, uh, of Hydro One. If uh, Kathleen Wynne was interested, sorry, Scott, if she was interested she, she would, in this, she would have raised the, the corporate taxes by 1% and raising $1 billion and, and, and make sure the corporations are paying their, for, their fair share so that we could get some money in the system and build infrastructure with extra money. But you don't sell public assets like Hydro One that everybody desperately needs while impoverishing people who can't afford the rates anymore. Is this about selling off uh, and privatizing companies, or is it about the cost of electricity? Because, um, you know, many will say that, you know, w when you look at the cost of our electricity, it is very little to do with privatization at this point. It has to do with government subsidies and for, for wind turbines no, and solar no. panels. I mean, it, you know, yeah. it, it's that that's been driving our bill up in the no, last no, years as well. Not at all, Scott. I mean, the, the real problem is that we're still paying for Darlington, that we built in 1990, which cost us $14 billion. Hydro doesn't have a problem. It's Darlington that we're still paying for. And, 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 when, and when Mike Harris deregulated the market, that's when rates went through the roof, in spite of the fact that Mike Harris said it's going to be more efficient and cheaper. And in spite of the fact that Kathleen Wynne is saying it's going to be more efficient and cheaper, privatization only jacked up the rates. I, I, the, 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 by the way, the smart meters that were supposed to be the, the great uh, co conservation tool cost us two billion bucks. 
But, but that isn't causing a, a great deal of conservation because people still from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. have to use hydro, and it's costing us a hell of a lot of money. So, so it, it isn't the fact that, we, that Mike Harris uh, uh, has done something great for us, uh, and, it, and it's the hydro um, uh, um, mishaps and misadventures that are causing this problem. It's... It, it, it's, it, it's the semi-privatization of our system. And yeah, but, but, you know, even though, but let's be honest here, uh, um, you know, we may have seen increases after privatization of the Harris era, but let's mm-hmm. be honest, it's been the liberals that have been jacking it through the roof for the last however many years, and that, ha- you know, they've been doing that under the guise of being green. It's got very little to do with, with privatization. And, and yeah. again, the biggest increases that we've seen have been in the last few years, and, and, and that, they say, has been attributed to funding renewable energies. Uh, Scott, I have a chart that you may not have seen uh, that I presented yesterday. But from 1999 um, uh, we, uh, and on, we began to see soaring uh, increases in our hydro rates. And it is equally true what you say, that when the, the Ontario Liberal government introduced the Green Energy Act, and privatize solar and wind, where we gave Samsung right. uh, the deal, saying. the seven billion dollar deal, and we're paying them eighty cents to for their the, the feed-in tariff. We are paying them eighty cents as opposed to five cents or ten cents uh, to, for that feed-in power. And yes, that kind of privatization has jacked up our rates mm. as well. Yeah. I did say that, yeah. but it is due to these privatization schemes, Scott, and that's that's what I decry, and that's what I'm fighting. Where do you see this going? Where, how do you see this, uh, uh, well, will it fix itself? E- even if we have another government uh, in the next 10 years, where do you see Ontario? Well, the, the, the problem is that if we sell 60% off and we get $7 billion out of that deal, if we try to buy it back, I guarantee it'll be anywhere from $20 billion to $30 billion. And that's why... Well, I why would we buy it back if we were selling it? We're not going to buy it back. We're not going to be able to buy it back. That's like us buying back the 407. It ain't going to happen. It's not going to ha- I agree. It's, it's going to be absolutely tough, which is why I continue with our campaign to persuade people, fight back. We can still persuade the wind to stop the sale, the other 30% of the sale of this Hydro One. So my campaign continues until, until uh, it's over. And I say to people, there's still time to, to call the, the Premier, write letters to the Premier, get into the media, talk about... The, the, this privatizing scheme and how this is going to affect everybody, and don't give up until it's over. Uh, Wynne says in the end she will still have control over the system. Do you believe that? It's an absolute lie uh, perpetrated on the people of Ontario, and if they buy it, uh, they, they, they're, they're not being very wise. The, imagine this. 60 each per... Uh, she says... The, the limit will be uh, 10 or 15 percent per, per uh, pr- private owner. But, but do you think private owners uh, act independent of each other, or do you think they're going to be in concert with each other? Hmm. And my argument is the private sector is going to behave as a private sector, and they will own 60 percent. If Premier Wynne had sold only 49 percent, she would have been able to make a strong case and say, we have 51 percent. Right. But when you only have 40 percent, Please don't lie to us and treat us as children and believe that we're going to believe you. Because the private market sector is going to take over and they're going to rule. And that's the fact. Are you concerned that the next government that gets in will want to do the same? I mean, the PCs talked about this as well. Uh, I'm worried that the, the Liberals will continue with privatizing other things. It may not have the privatization name, but they will continue to privatize uh, other things. The Conservatives were the ones who started uh, the privatization and deregulation under Mike Harris. Uh, do I believe uh, that the Conservative Party uh, is not interested in continuing with privatization schemes? No, I don't. I think they, that is who they are. They fundamentally uh, believe that privatization is a good thing. What about and the so, Liberals? What do they believe? The Liberals? Mm-hmm. Well, the Liberals are going to continue with privatizing other, other public assets. So That's they're right. all on the same page? They are now all on the same page. It used to be that only conservatives privatized, but now it's liberals that are interested in um, privatizing and, and leading this uh, 
uh, this particular uh, direction. Uh, and I decry it. I think it's wrong, and I'm hoping people will fight back. Rosario, do you think this ship has sailed? Do you think it's too late? They've sold 30%. They still have to sell 30 more. The liberals are not very popular these days. The more we pressure the government, the more they're going to have to back down. The more liberal MB- MPP backbenchers are afraid they're going to lose their seats, the, the more pressure we're going to put on Kathleen Wynne to back down. So the ship has not sailed completely. We can stop it. Uh, Frank writes in, uh, how do uh, we fare with other provinces on the cost of electricity? Uh, we're, we pay the highest of anybody, don't we? I mean, we're, well, it was just reported a while ago we pay the highest rate, residential rates in North America, don't we? Uh, Nova Scotia was, had the highest rates in the country. They were privatized since 1992. Alberta uh, has incredibly high rates because they're too uh, privatized. And they were le- these two jurisdictions were leading the country, and we're now catching up. We will be number one. And I don't think that there's anything to be proud of to be number one with the highest rates in the country. But what it shows you is where you privatize, rates go up. Manitoba and Quebec have the lowest rates in the country. Why? Because they're public. Well, you know, just the argument over uh, they continually generate revenue, why would you want to sell? And, and that was my argument with the 407. Why would you want to sell something that continually generates revenue is, beno- is beyond me. It's idiotic, Scott. It's completely idiotic. The, that being said, there's lots of political parties that say we shouldn't be in these businesses, we shouldn't be in these games. Where do you draw the line between public and private ownership? Well, in my view, only, only wealthy people say those things. And the wealthy have uh, tremendous power to try and persuade people that they do things better. We've seen the world economy almost collapse uh, on several occasions, uh, being led by private sector banks, particularly in the U.S. Uh, I don't think they do it well. We had to bail them out in order to save ourselves. They, that's, when so, what, that's when they call on socialism to bail them out. And that's what the Americans did to save the world. The private sector does not do it better. I am a strong believer that the public sector does it well and can do it well if we, uh, if we force governments to do it well. And now the government is saying, oh, my God, the hydro one file is so bad that, that we need to privatize it. Excuse me, Minister, uh, uh, Minister Wynn or Premier Wynn, you've got the, the, the power to, to fix that problem. If you can't fix it, move over and let somebody else take care of it. Rosario Marchese has been with us, Chair for Citizens Coalition Against Privatization, a town hall meeting held last night by the Citizens Coalition Against uh, Privatization, arguing that the sale of Hydro One is just going to continue to drive up the price of electricity. Rosario, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.